0: Good morning, it's good to see each of you today and to come together and to worship the Lord in our public worship service, to sing praises to Him, to pray, um, and now to even hear God's Word. And what a a special privilege this is, and Jesse made reference to this several times, that many do not have the freedom to come and to worship uh, in the fashion that we do. We'll be continuing in the Gospel of Mark, as was mentioned today, looking at chapter 1, verses 29 to 39. Uh, You might think, wow, we're getting bold, we're taking 10 verse chunks, and we do plan to take larger chunks as we're able, and uh, to work our way through this Gospel. Uh, One of the things that struck me as I was studying this week is how much the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished in three years of earthly ministry, or three and a half years, depending on... Um, who you read and which systematic theology might comment on that. But suffice it to say that he got an incredible amount done in that short time. And just to think that we only have abbreviated accounts of all that he did. He accomplished so much more. And one of the things that struck me is how we should be challenged. How do we spend our time? Are we spending our time wisely? And hence the title of the message. If you look at the outline, it's Time for Compassion and communion. Jesus always made time to show compassion to others. As we just sung very beautifully, He always had time for communion with His Father in prayer. And as we began, just consider, how do you value one year of your life? Well, you can talk to any young person that's been held back a grade and, and there may be regrets later that now they're, they're, they're a year behind everybody else. How do you value one month? Ask a mother who had a premature baby, um, as we have one even in our midst. Um, How do you value one week? How do you value one hour? Consider someone terminally ill, laying in a hospital bed, waiting for their spouse or another loved one to come for a visit, and they're late and they know their life could be taken at any time. How do you value one minute? Well, if you've ever been like me, running through the airport trying to catch a, a connecting flight and, and trying to get to that gate before they close the doors, and thankfully I've never actually had the doors closed on me, but I've also ran harder and faster than I probably ever have through airports, but one minute at a time, ask anyone who's missed a plane by one minute, and then you think one second of time. What's the big deal about one second? Well, ask the Olympic medalist. Or the swimmer of how they missed winning the gold by a split second. All of these things are to just paint a snapshot, as it were, of how important it is for us to manage our time. And Jesus, in this passage, one thing that jumped out to me with last week's text and this this week, is, is all of this takes place on one Sabbath day until we get towards the end of our text and how much he accomplished and how Jesus uses time management despite all the pressures upon him he maintained his priorities no matter what he had no iCal no outlook no iphone reminders none of that stuff and yet he maintained his priorities and got everything done that he thought was most important he gives us a good example and it's much more than an example which I'll comment on but a good example of how to live a balanced life despite a demanding schedule. And there's one thing, as I counsel people, meet people, talk to people, what do you hear more than anything today? I'm just so busy. Jesus was busy, <laughs> and yet he navigated time for the important things. One more analogy, imagine that a bank credits your account each morning with dollars, $86, $86,400, and that money is credited to your account But there's no carryover. At the end of the day, it's wiped to zero. So you can't carry it over. You can't cash in on it. You can't pull it from the future. Well, we have such a bank, and the bank is called time. Every day, you're credited with 86,400 seconds. Every night, that's debited zero in your account, and then the next day, you're given a new 86,400 seconds. A time bank doesn't allow overdraft. You can't borrow on the future and take time from tomorrow for today. You are only given that amount of time. And the clock ticks, and it ticks, and it ticks. And what are you accomplishing in those 86,000 seconds that you have? Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, redeem the time, for the days are evil. So let's read our text, beginning in verse 29. I'm sure you've already turned there by now. Mark chapter 1. And again, this is connected to last week's text, verse 21 to 28. Mark begins with this word, which is repeated many times, especially in chapter 1, but throughout the gospel. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening had come, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak, because they knew who He was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for Him and they found Him. And they said to Him, everyone is looking for You. And He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. Let us pray once again. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would indeed remove cares and distractions during this time. We pray, Lord, that you would send the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. Lord, the Spirit to convict and to convince regarding sin, to encourage and strengthen in regards to our faith. To the end, Lord, that we would each say that it was good for us to be in the house of the Lord. Lord, we would pray for any here who do not know this wonderful, compassionate Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that today might be the day of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've established that the first half of the Gospel of Mark is largely proving Jesus Christ authority chapters one to chapter eight, unfolds that uh, that's typically manifested in three ways: His authority over sickness and infirmity, his authority over demons and then over even nature itself, as we see him calm the storms and the waves. Mark shows us who Jesus is by what he does. and, and last week, there were two things that jumped out of the text in which was blinking big red lights, you know, blinking Jesus Christ authority. And it was his teaching in the synagogue that he taught in such a way that the people were amazed because he didn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees, but he taught as one having authority. And the second thing was when he cast out the demon of that one that was in the synagogue. There were no incantations, no Rites or spells, like as were would have been more common in the first century, but it was by his word alone the demon was expelled. And so, two examples united together, as it says, even in verse 27. So, they were all amazed in the synagogue, they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority, and he even commands the unclean spirits. So, today we continue to see this authority demonstrated by our Lord Jesus Christ. And and there's a distinct mark in verse 29. They have come out of the synagogue. That was all last week. In the synagogue. Now they have come into Simon Peter's house, or Simon's house as it's referred to here. So my prayer is that we would have the right priorities in managing our time wisely, even as we see Jesus making time for compassion and communion with his Father. We'll consider this under three simple points. And the first is this, the physical pressures placed on Jesus. Secondly, we'll see his persistent prayers. And then lastly, his purposeful mission. So first of all, the physical pressures placed on Jesus. We see in this context here, they've come out of the synagogue into the house of Simon. And now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately, there it is again, they spoke to him, to Jesus, about her. So Peter's mother-in-law is lying ill. Uh, Perhaps just as we do, and many of us do, we invite people into our home after church, and so Simon was opening up his home after the worship at the synagogue. Jesus is invited. Some say Jesus lived there. We don't know that, but nevertheless, Jesus is invited. The other fishermen are invited. The mother-in-law is there. It's very common to have large households at that time. So people were invited in for an afternoon and a meal, to refresh and discuss the things that were learned in the synagogue, but there's a big problem. The hostess is laying sick with a fever. By the way, I think it would have been amazing to be a fly on the wall or to have somehow that tape recorded, the discussion within that home amongst the different people about what they had just seen in the synagogue. Mark uses strong words that they're amazed, they're astounded. Two different Greek words he uses in last week's text. And so you can imagine the discussion that's going on in this home. Well, we don't have that tape recorder, but we do have the Holy Scriptures. And the text says that she was laid up with a fever. Luke, the physician in his gospel account, says that she was in the grip of a high fever, suffering the attack of a fever. Now, just a general comment, side comment. If Simon had a mother-in-law, what does that mean about Simon? That he was married, right? And so the Roman Catholic Church does not like verses such as this because this is clearly stating that Peter was indeed married and their whole call to celibacy and so forth It's contradictory to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Paul even makes reference in 1 Corinthians 9 that are we not apostles are able to take a wife and mentions Simon. But here what we have before us is a private occasion of Jesus' healing. There's no one else except for the few that are in this house, and I say few by comparison's sake to what we'll see in a moment. And so, such a contrast from the commotion of the authoritative teaching, the exorcism that had just happened in the synagogue, and now in the confines of a home, in the confines of one room, here is a private healing. But notice first, it's as though maybe Jesus is in the, as we would call it, the living room or something, and uh, Peter's mother-in-law's back in a back room and, and they rush out to, to tell him. It's not as though he walked in the door and he saw that she had a fever. It says, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And I think there's a lesson there for us that when we are afflicted with various difficulties or health afflictions or whatever, that we cry out to Jesus, that we pour out our complaint to Him since He is our great high priest. We take our troubles to the Lord. We see that in John 11 as Lazarus had died and how they came and they told Jesus. We live in a world full of sickness and sorrow and our trials are many. And so when disappointment comes, when ill comes, to be able to come and pour our complaint out to the Lord because we know that He hears. Even you young people, maybe you are seeking to live a life pleasing to the Lord. You're reading your Bible each day and and there's difficulties, or discouragements. Friends let you down. Sometimes you feel betrayed by parents and whether justified or not, pour out your complaint to the Lord because He hears you. Cry out to Him to get perspective. But the text says that He took her by the hand. Jesus comes into the room, takes her by the hand. Matthew's account says that Jesus touched the woman's hand, and and whether it was a touch or a holding of the hand, we know that it was a powerful, tender touch of Jesus Christ. Jesus had complete control over the situation, as he does every situation. He has complete control over fevers and sicknesses and all manner of stuff like that, just as we'll see later. He has control over winds and storms and and waves, and even the demonic world, he is in sovereign control. And he speaks to the fever, according to Luke, that he rebukes the fever. It's the same terminology that's used in Luke 8 of rebuking the waves when they came and woke him up. Now notice with me, it says that they spoke to Jesus, he came and took her by the hand and raised her up, and the fever left her. So immediately, the fever leaves her. and 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 you can almost picture the scene she's laid up she's racked with a high fever her face is flushed her her body perhaps is shaking and suddenly the fever leaves her and she comes to her daughter daughter feel my forehead (laughs) it's gone in an instant i mean you were just here and i had this high fever son-in-law peter come it's amazing completely restored and, and something else to mark here is that usually when a fever leaves, if you're racked with sickness and a fever, the minute your temperature goes to normal, do you just have a burst of energy and you're back into things? No, you're kind of like laid up still for a while. Like, you're kind of out of it. Your strength is sapped. But with the Lord, He gives new strength. It says here that the fever left her and she waited on them. And so... The fever is gone. The symptoms are gone. But not only that, there's a new wave of strength that comes upon her so that she can fulfill that role as a busy hostess. The word that Mark uses is that she, they, she waited on them. It's the same word. It's, it means to minister. It's the same word that's used of Jesus in the wilderness when the angels came and ministered to Him. She ministered to the people there. Sometimes we can allow the smallest thing to set us back. Uh, The slightest runny nose, the slightest whatever. We can procrastinate things, we can cancel appointments, we can miss work, we can miss church. All of these kinds of things. And we can learn from this text that we need to come and to tell Jesus our complaint and then trust that He will give the new strength that we need to fulfill our God-given responsibilities. Isaiah 40, beautifully put, He gives strength to the weary... And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain what? New strength. And they will mount up like the eagles. And they will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Those who have been touched and healed by Jesus, not only do they have new strength to serve Him, but also they are empowered, having been touched by Him, to now navigate and to make battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we see a private healing of Peter's mother-in-law. But look in verse 32. It says, When evening had come, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. Now, just picture how news is spreading, okay? They're, they're, They're waiting till sundown for a reason, right? Why is that? It's the Sabbath day, right? And so... They're not going to just start lining up after the synagogue. Synagogue usually got out about noon, okay? So there's, there's this whole, whatever, six hours during the afternoon, assuming sunset was about six, as it often is in the Middle East. And so the, uh, they're waiting until that time. And, and Mark makes it very clear, in the evening after the sun had set, and the Jewish Sabbath went from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. That was the Jewish Sabbath. It was evening to evening but the, and the whole idea of how news spread about Jesus everywhere so that the whole city is gathered at the door. Now this is in an era where there's no Facebook, no email, no internet, no Fox News, and yet the news spread about Jesus. Obviously this is a small village, maybe um, 10,000 or whatever it's been guesstimated, but still the news spread. That's still a significant amount of people and by the way, the, the tense of the verb is they were bringing all of those who were sick. It's the imperfect. Is, is they kept bringing. He's healing. They're bringing more. And it's, there's this constant cycle that's going on. And so the whole town gathered at the door is probably, no doubt, hyperbole. Um, I don't think 10,000 people were outside the door of Peter's house. But the idea is that there was a lot of people, a whole lot of people that were there. And Jesus, after ministering all day, casting out demons, does not say, alright, you know, I'm going to go to about 8 o'clock and then guys close it up, send them away or whatever, right? He makes time to show compassion. He makes time. And do you make time to show compassion? And you think, well, if, there was, if I had the power to heal a withered hand or to heal a fever or something like that, well, then I would. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just mundane, practical ways that you can show compassion and kindness to those around you, inside the church and outside of the church. There's really kind of two applications there, isn't there? I mean, do you have time? If somebody's on the side of a road stranded with a flat tire or engine trouble to stop, maybe they don't have a cell phone, you can actually make a phone call for them and then drive off. It costs you about 60 seconds of your time. Someone needs a ride to church or needs a meal, or or even more practically, someone's lonely and you know they're lonely and and, and you're busy, but you carve out time to go and visit and to encourage and to read Scripture, or or, or someone's sick and to go and visit them and encourage them or to comfort the faint-hearted. Do you make time for compassion? Well, the text goes on. Jesus uh, says, or the text here says that he was casting out demons, this is the end of verse 34, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. You might say, what? Well, this is like free advertising, Jesus. What are you doing? I mean, come on, if, let others praise you, not your own lips, you know, the proverb uh, and so forth. Let, let others t- say who you are, right? No, Jesus had greater purposes um, in mind here, and I'll try to unpack this very briefly, but Jesus healed many, no doubt. The lame leapt for joy. The blind were made to see. Uh, people that were demon-possessed, foaming at the mouth, were made whole. People who had lost their minds, perhaps completely mentally incapacitated, it would appear, which was demon possession, would be completely removed so that they could think in their normal faculties. And so there's already those people who are telling others about it, but he was not allowing the demons to speak. And they There's really kind of a secrecy motif that's going on here. The goal was not to get as big a crowd as possible. That's never the goal with Jesus' ministry. It's easy to draw a crowd, isn't it? But as we saw even last week, uh, look in verse 24 of chapter 1. The demon says, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? How? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet, literally be muzzled and come out of him. You see it again in chapter 1 of verse 44. Next week, Lord willing, he said to him, this is the leper, see to it that you say nothing to anyone but go show yourself to the priest and offer, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony unto them. But look in verse 45. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely, and the news spread around. So we see this idea of not only Jesus telling the demons, as we have in our text, but Jesus also tells those who are healed. But then, there's even twice where he tells his disciples not to let this news out early. And one is after that great, Who do men say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's great confession, right? Jesus says in Mark 8 and verse 30, and he warned them to to tell no one about him. You might say, wow, this is very strange. Well, think about it like this. Perhaps it is likely that if the news spread about him too quickly so that his identity became known over all of Galilee in a very short amount of time, that this would cut short the mission of Messiah, bringing about his death sooner than would otherwise be the case And really, even the disciples didn't get this, even at the cross, but it's only on the cross can Jesus' true identity be rightly known. As you consider the purpose for which He came, it wasn't to establish an earthly kingdom right then. It wasn't just to come and show compassion and to heal physical diseases. It was to come to be a substitute for sinners. So that even the centurion would say in Mark 15, verse 39, truly this is the Son of God. That is the profound confession of a Gentile looking on to where he makes confession of who Jesus Christ is. But the idea of concealing the righteous even is picked up from the Psalms. You see it in different places. Psalm 17 is one. Psalm 27, we know more... um, um, It's more familiar, but uh, David says, "...but in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me." he will lift me up on a rock. So the idea here that if news spread too fast, yes, God's sovereign and all of that, but there was a plan, there was a mission as to how his earthly ministry would be unfolded. There was a determined time when that time would be that he would go on the cross. We know from Acts 2, the predeterminate plan of God, right? And so all of this is unfolding exactly as the triune God has predestined from before the foundation of the world. I want to make one other comment in Matthew's account of this, uh, what, we're, what we're considering here in Matthew 8 and verse 17. Matthew's purpose is to show how Christ fulfills all the Old Testament scriptures and to demonstrate Jesus really is king. And he says this, he adds this one verse to this, this text. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now, that's true, right? Isaiah 53, he brings in the idea of that passage there, which focuses really on substitution, but also the fact that there is a certain people that he took away the infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now, I want to mention this verse because some people, if you know some that are in the Pentecostal movement, this is the basis for which they have their healing services. Doesn't it say right here that, that he has done that, and so now we can now reduplicate that. And in fact, I had African pastors asking me just three weeks ago when I was teaching them, well, what about this verse? This is the verse, you know, the da 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 And so they had to explain that. They used that as validation for their Pentecostal healing services. Well, that's the physical pressures placed on Jesus. We must move on quickly and consider now the persistent prayer of Jesus. And we see that in verses 35 to 37. Let me just read verse 35 for us again. In the early morning... While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Now we can assume this is the end of that 24-hour period of which was the Sabbath. This is early the next morning. Remember, Sabbath ended at sundown. So here it is the next morning, and Jesus goes very early to pray. And I ask you, do you enjoy early morning communion with your God? Let us consider the context of Jesus' life for a moment. He had just spent and had been spent the day before preaching in the synagogue, casting out demons, a day of hospitality and counseling and encouraging those within the house of Peter. And then the evening, crowds being brought to Him, casting out demons and healing. I mean, if ever anybody had the right to some sanctified rest it is Jesus. He's just exerted himself for so many hours. But yet we see that Christ here gets up early. And, you know, there is some deserved rest. There is something to be said for those who spend and are expent for the gospel and to have that, that time of rest. But here we see the Lord getting up very early. Now, I want to mention two things. There's really, you can see the humanity of Jesus here in two ways. Um, we affirm the deity and the humanity of Jesus. Uh, most certainly, we've established that several times. But the humanity of Jesus, that he must have been very tired. We know many times where he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's tired, he's sleeping. He was tired after a day like this, it's safe to say. In fact, Peter in Acts 10 later. He would summarize Christ's ministry and say, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Well, just consider this previous Sabbath day. He went and he taught, and he taught as one having authority. Preaching, if it's right preaching, The full mental faculties are engaged. The physical faculties are engaged. And Jesus is preaching. It was R.C. Sproul and also others who have said that it's estimated that 45 minutes of preaching would be equated to eight hours of labor. Not to mention the casting out of demons. You remember when the woman touched him? And he said, who touched me? And the disciples were like, Jesus, the crowds are all around. He goes, no, power went out of me. I think it's safe to assume that it took physical power for him to cast out demons. He knew when power went out of him to heal or to cast out demons. Jesus exerted much force and labor in preaching and casting out demons or that demon at the synagogue and then that previous evening as well. But his humanity is also shown in a second way. And that is that he felt his need to pray. He wanted to commune with his father. This doesn't mean that he wasn't God. Of course, he's God. He's the God Man, but his humanity is also there. And so he arises early. He's not going to suffice to wait until he hears a knock on the door and close his eyes for two or three minutes and pray, and then say, "I've prayed to my Father who is in heaven." He arises early while it is still. The text is very emphatic. Not only early morning, right, but while it was still. Dark, he got up. That is well before sunrise. Okay, this isn't just just as the dawn is happening. This is, it was pitch black still. Okay, and we read Psalm 5, where the psalmist says, In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. You see so many examples through church history. Joseph Eileen is one that, that impacted me. Um, the call to the unconverted in his book, but that he made it a practice throughout his whole ministry to arise at 4 a.m. and to pray, spend two hours in prayer every day. Now, what I'm not saying is that this text tells us we must get up while it is still dark and pray. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that prayer should be a priority. And to show that it's a priority, it should occur towards the beginning of the day. That it is important that we carve out time for it. Jesus made time for communion with God. And that it's not just a little flimsy two or three minutes. And yes, if that's all you have time for, it's better than nothing, okay? But to actually carve out time of concentrated prayer, laboring before the Lord, communing with Him, I find that it takes a good five to ten minutes just to clear my mind mostly before I can really engage in prayer. One of the Puritans, Thomas Brooks, said cold prayers always freeze before they reach heaven. Sometimes our hearts are cold. and We need to rekindle our hearts and the fire needs to be ignited before we can really engage in the kind of prayer that the Lord would have us engage in. Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face speaking of the church in Thessalonica praying earnestly again and again in the bible it tells us that our prayers should be marked by earnestness in fact there's four verbs here in verse 35 just look at it with me early in the morning while it's still dark first of all Jesus had to get up so step number one get up out of bed Don't don't fool yourself that, oh, don't worry. I can just pray so good right here. I'm so comfortable. Oh, this is so good. No, no, no. Get up. And then he left. Okay? So, leaving that area. Maybe the bedroom or whatever, you know. And he went. So he found a secluded place. And then he was praying there. Now... By the way, the secluded place is, is very interesting. It's the same word that's used as John the Baptist baptizing in the wilderness, which was a real desert. Jesus, during his temptation, was in the desert. But off this word also occurs just meaning finding a secluded place. And I think it's carrying over this, this historical redemptive theme of how the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, but there was times when God visited them and there was times of restoration even repentance, restoration, and fellowship. But this idea of getting up and going somewhere to pray, Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount. Didn't He say, go into your inner room, and when you have shut the door, right? Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus pours out His heart to His Father, no doubt in praise and adoration and thanksgiving for the day before. Jesus was a man of prayer. His life was marked and patterned by prayer. Three times in Mark we're told specifically that he withdrew to pray. But Mark, I mean the other gospel writers also mention it, but Luke mentions it many times. Just listen to this list. Before the feeding of the 5,000 he prays. At the tomb of Lazarus, he prays. Did you know that Jesus was praying while he was being baptized? Luke 3:21. "Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened. I confess, I've never seen that before. It's never impacted me before, that as he was praying, that is when the Father spoke from heaven. Luke 5, verse 15 and 16 but the news about Him was spreading even further and large crowds were gathering to hear Him and He healed all of their sicknesses. But Jesus Himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray in the midst of the crowds, in the midst of the commotion. And Luke, the physician, the detail guy, tells us He would often do this. It's not just those three times once a year during His ministry, no. It was His practice. Before choosing the twelve disciples, He prayed. On the Mount of Transfiguration, He prayed. And that glorious invitation of Matthew 11 and 28, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right before that, He's praying. And listen to this prayer. It says, Jesus said, I praise You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them unto infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then the invitation, come unto me. We see him praying earnestly in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's about to drink the cup of God's wrath, we see him praying with such earnestness and passion that he's sweating, as it were, drops of blood according to Luke's account. And yes, he was sinless, but we see his humanity here marked by how he prayed and he communed with his Father and he made time and he made it a priority to commune with his Father. One man said his perfection, his very perfection, was the perfection kept up through the exercise of prayer. Now, obviously, he's the God man, but for us, think about it. We, we we wonder if we're growing in the Christian life, and are are we being sanctified? Are we growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ? And and sometimes we think, well, well we're, we've hit a wall. We're not we're not growing. But we we ignore the fact that there are means by which God uses to encourage us and to help us to grow. Reading the Word of God. Praying. Sitting under the ordinances. Hearing the Word proclaimed. These are means of grace. Now, lest we begin to start feeling guilty and beat ourselves up because I've failed. I've only prayed twice this week and I haven't prayed in an inner room or somewhere secluded in a month or something. I want to bring some qualifications. In the midst of our Christian lives, none of us can do these things perfectly. We all fail. Our flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We are all prayerless when compared to Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we are prayerless. You see, Jesus is more than an example of how to pray and when to pray, He is faithful to continue to pray. He continues to pray for us. And hear me now if you don't hear anything else, that just as Jesus withdrew, just as He went away to a secluded place and was praying there, praying for a myriad of things, He is still praying now at the right hand of the Father in Heaven. He still intercedes on behalf of His people. He prays as our great High Priest that He is our mediator He's the only mediator between God and man. He is prophet, priest, and king. We saw His kingly authority last week in His teaching and His authority over sickness. We see His priestly authority in His intercession. Just as the priest would wear this breastplate with the names of the sons of Israel attached to it, Jesus, when He goes to the secret places, He's in heaven. He prays with the names of His people before His mind's eye. Praying for them specifically We have one of these recorded right before Simon Peter would deny the Lord. It says in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And of course we know he was restored and mightily used of the Lord, right? Even after such a dismal failure of denying the Lord three times. And then we think, well, the Proverbs says that a righteous man may fall seven times and he rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Brothers and sisters, what enables the righteous man to rise up are the very priestly prayers of Christ for you. That's what enables you to rise up from the ashes again. Though we fail, though we fail, though we fail. It's the prayers of Jesus because He prays for us even now. Even today, and we read it in Romans 8. Who is the one that condemns? I mean, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God. And in case you don't get it, who also intercedes for us. He is our righteousness. Maybe you don't feel like you're growing in Christ. Maybe you feel like you're just a dismal failure. Maybe you question whether you're even a Christian or not. Brethren, the Bible doesn't say to live by your feelings. You live by the promises of God. And we need to remind ourselves of these truths. We didn't sing it today, but we sing it often. Before the throne of God. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace, one with Himself. I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. And so yes, though you fail, though you're, you have to rise up 70 times maybe because you've fallen, it is His persevering grace that enables you to rise up again and to keep pressing on. There's no one, market, no one that can sympathize with your weaknesses like Jesus Christ, your great high priest. Not your spouse, not your girlfriend, not your boyfriend, not another friend. There is no one that can fully sympathize like Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. You need to remember that you have an advocate with the Father. 1 John 2.1 If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the one that's righteous. So when you fail, it's perfectly good to experience conviction of sin. It's perfectly good to get on your face and confess your disgusting, rotten, God-dishonoring sin, but also to remember that you have an advocate that is praying for you. And that is the very fuel that should drive you to your knees, that you need to pour out your heart to your great Savior because it is He who is the one that is causing you to persevere. Moving on quickly, what was the content of Jesus' prayers? Well, we read one of them in Matthew 11. Um, Some of us use the acronym ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Jesus didn't need any confession, right? That should be a big part of your prayers. Confessing your sin, if you understand something of the holiness of God, his prayers were to imitate and, and to His prayers were marked by zeal for God's glory and they were intimate with God. We have an amazing prayer recorded for us in John 17. His high priestly prayer just hours before He would go to the cross. A glorious prayer. I encourage you to take this afternoon and um, to read the whole thing, but just reading a few verses. It says, Even as You gave, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that your Son may glorify you, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that all whom you have given Him, He may have eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given to me to do. Father, glorify me together with yourself. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask on these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for future disciples. So. Suffice it to say that Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's praying for the glory of God that's being shown and demonstrated through him. He's praying for his disciples, future disciples. He has a mission-oriented prayer as he's praying for those who would come to know him later. Furthermore, he taught his disciples how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. He gave the Lord's Prayer, how to pray. He said, do not pray this way. Meaningless repetitions. He had taught them how to pray. And then very quickly, disciples search for Jesus. Uh, Peter is the leader. He's already demonstrating the leadership skills. Look in verse 36. Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. The word for search means to hunt or to hunt down eagerly. So they are ferociously looking for Jesus where he's at. It's a little more than just kind of a a walking through the, the places here. Um, And again, Peter's already the spokesman. He's demonstrating the natural gifts. And he says, everybody is looking for you. No doubt a large crowd was already gathered at the door of Peter's house. And the disciples are probably thinking, Jesus, this is great. Not only yesterday, we had the popularity that we've never had before. I mean, they were coming in hundreds and hundreds. And you were just healing and demons were being cast out. Well, guess what? We can continue it today. They're already lining up. Come on, Jesus. Let's capitalize on this. But Jesus is not interested in large healing services. He's not interested in circus charades. He's more concerned for the spiritual, internal healing versus physical healing. Even though those are paralleled sometimes. He's not out for a healing campaign. And so, our last point, having saw the pressures of Jesus and His persistent prayer, lastly, the purposeful mission, And we're just going to mention this, read it, and mention a couple of comments and be done. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. So Jesus here, he's not going to allow the people, he's not going to allow the crowds, he's not going to allow his disciples to dictate where he will go. But out of love for others, he presses on out of Capernaum to go to the other regions of Galilee. Capernaum would serve as the headquarters where he would come back. But all these other towns and villages needed a demonstration of compassion. They needed to hear the preaching of Jesus Christ. And so he says, let us go. Verse 38. In other words, he's not saying, you guys stay here, but I'm going to move on. No, these are his followers. Let us go. You will be coming with me. And notice what he doesn't say. that Oh no, I heard that over in such and such village, there's a a terrible sickness going through there, stomach flus and people dying, and I need to go and heal those people. That's not Jesus' concern. Look what it says. Let us go somewhere else so that, this is the reason why I need to move on, I may preach there also, for this is what I came for. He goes because he must go to preach. The miracles, the healing, served as as a supporting role But they are secondary to his primary mission, which is preaching. As we saw back in verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Well, in conclusion, four simple points, quick points. If you don't know Jesus, I invite you to bring your diseases, your burdens, and your sins to Jesus Throw them and call out to Him and throw them on the ground. Ask for cleansing. Ask for renewal. Confessing your sins. Cry out for mercy and He will forgive you. He is faithful to cleanse you from all unrighteousness if you will come to Him. Secondly, how will you rearrange and prioritize your time? You're given 86,000 seconds a day. How much of them belong to the Lord? How can you use them more for God's glory? Some of us just need... a a, a swift boot in the rump to really kind of get us to to grow in our personal disciplines. Martin Luther was quoted as saying, I have so much to do today. I must get up three hours early and spend extra time in prayer. Carve out time each day to go to Him, preferably at the beginning of the day. Thirdly, know that Jesus is praying for you. Remember his priestly work, that he is there interceding on your behalf. Another favorite hymn of mine, Arise, My Soul. It says, five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. The wounds pour effectual prayers and strongly plead for me. Forgive, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. And fourthly, our church must have the right priorities as well. It must have the right priorities and and mission before it as the elders are just mere under-shepherds, under Christ, who is the head of the church. We're seeking to do things and to use our time to the best we can for His glory. And so we put the primacy of the preaching of the Word of God. We, We put emphasis on outreach and demonstrations of compassion to a lost and dying world. In our Lord's Day services, we include the things that we believe are, are important because they're clearly prescribed and commanded in the Scriptures. That's why we read Scripture. That's why we pray. That's why we preach. That's why we'll have the ordinance of the Lord's table later. That's why we practice baptism. We are called to do these things. And so, as we've considered before us, Jesus, the physical pressures placed on Him his persistent prayers and the purposeful mission that he didn't lose sight of his greater mission in the midst of popularity, let us make time for compassion and communion. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would encourage us with the gospel. We thank you so much for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is praying even now for us. Lord, if there's ways we can reallocate our time, ways we can grow ways we can eke out a few more seconds, a few hundred seconds for You each and every day. Help us in that regard. We praise You and love You. In Jesus' name, Amen.